All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I am your host, Aaron Freeman, and today I am joined for another fan talk with Marco, a.k.a. Vienna Falcons. Today we're going to talk about the signing of Justin Bethel, as well as maybe the changing of the guard in the NFC as far as playoff supremacy goes. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman, founder of Falcfans.com, one of the longest running Falcon fan sites on the internet. Also the host of this podcast, and you can find me tweeting all these hot takes at Falcons on Twitter. <laughs> um, I am joined by Vienna Falcons, known as Vienna Falcons on Twitter. His real name is Marco. He comes from us all the way from, you guessed it, Vienna, Australia. We've had him on <laughs> multiple times. Uh, Australia. Austria. I'm sorry. Um <laughs> No, no kangaroos here. Yeah, yeah, uh, just in the zoo, I guess. But um, yeah, so Marco's here to talk with us a little bit about some research he's done. As you guys know, multiple times we've had Marco on. He always has some interesting stats that are worthy topics of discussion, and we'll get into that. But uh, first, we want to talk about Justin Bethel. But before we do that, welcome back to the show, Marco. Hi, Aaron. Thanks to be, thanks to having me on again. All right, man. Let's get into this Justin Bethel signing. I touched upon it a little bit on the previous fan talk I did with Mac Hickman last week uh, about the possibility of signing Justin Bethel and what he brings to the table. But we can touch upon it more more deeply now that he is officially a Falcon. Uh, what were your thoughts, Marco, when you saw that the Falcons added Justin Bethel? Well, I thought I thought it was a, a great depth signing for the secondary, uh, and I think for special teams, it's just fantastic to have him on because uh, we uh, last year the Falcons really struggled with coverage, uh, as far as uh, I remember it, and and I thought uh, that would be a great way to solidify that position. But I think in terms of cornerback depth, um, he's he's a valuable piece there. But I don't think he's a long-term solution in the sense of that, you know, you would kind of build on him to be a successor to any of the starting cornerbacks we have right now uh, in the in the future. So so for that, I'm kind of, you know, I think he's a valuable depth in, at cornerback, but I think he's a really great special team signing. Um, uh, what about you? How, how do you feel? Yeah, I think, you know, primarily special teams. We don't know exactly what the terms are. So I'm, I am curious mm-hmm. to sort of see those first before I... I judge it too positively or, mm. or negatively in any way because I feel like if he's, you know, we know we got a one-year deal from the Falcons, but if he signed for something south of $2 million, I think that's, you know, that indi- clearly indicates that the Falcons are targeting him more for special teams um, than mm-hmm. anything because you don't typically pay special teams performers more than, you know, a million, a million and a half. We paid Andre Roberts, I think, one point eight million last year. So I, I think that would be if if they did get him for under two million, I would think okay, it's a great move in that regard. If they paid more than that, then you're sort of looking at what you would typically pay if you were signing a cornerback uh, that would be the front runner or or potentially a, a major competitor for the nickel cornerback spot. And I don't really think Bethel is that guy. We've talked quite a bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. over the last couple of months where the Falcons have room to grow in terms of upgrading that uh, position with Brian Poole currently there. 
but I don't think Bethel is a serious contender to push pull. And so if the Falcons paid him more than say, you know, two and a half or 2.8 million or something like that, I do feel like that's probably a million more than they probably needed to in order to upgrade special teams. But obviously, you know, you do have to pay a little bit of a premium in free agency. So if I, I won't be upset with the move, but I just won't like it as much, say, if, you know, they paid him two and a half million or 2.8 million or something like that. But uh, we'll see mm-hmm. how it goes. I, I do think it does certainly upgrade the special teams in a lot of ways. And, and that is an area where the Falcons certainly uh, do need a lot of help because um, it seemed like yeah. last year the better special teams players didn't always play special teams, particularly the second half of the season. (laughs) And, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of sort of the turnover at that that unit over the years where they've lost a lot of core special teams players. And sort of last year in particular, they were trying to replace many of those guys with guys that not really played special teams in previous years uh, in Atlanta, like Teron Ward. He, he, He dabbled occasionally in special teams, but he wasn't necessarily a regular performer there. Um, or rookies, as we saw with guys like Jermaine Grace and um, DeMonte Casey and, and Duke Riley. And some of those guys performed well and some of those guys didn't. And then as well as um, some veteran players that were also brand new, like Derek Coleman and whatnot. And again, some of those guys performed well and some of those guys didn't. So it did seem like they were a lot. A lot of it was trying to make lemonade out of lemons, uh, as they say, and in you can argue that the lemonade was pretty sour. Um, so uh, I, I do think Bethel is at least a, a major step in the right direction to try to enhance that unit going into 2018. Yeah, yeah. I also wonder like, um, if, if Bethel signing kind of impacts the draft strategy that they now have. Because like before that, you, I could talk myself into cornerback being uh, a, a possible plan B or plan C, pretty high up in the draft if like everything if all the d tackles are gone and, and something really horrible happens there uh but right now like I, I i think i have to bump down cornerback a little bit because it's kind of like it's such crowded field with bringing back bleedy ray wilson and and leon mcfadden and and now justin bethel it's, it's kind of like where would you put a game there uh and i wonder do you see uh, do you also think the cornerback has now slipped a little bit in the, in yeah. the draft meet um board it does seem like that, and and the the funny thing is because I I think if they draft the, the right cornerback early and you know and maybe like day two, yeah, I think that guy would immediately probably be better than Justin Bethel yeah. and Bleedy Ray Wilson mm-hmm. and Leon McFadden, but if they mm-hmm. waited until day three of the draft and and take took a guy in like round four or five or not mm-hmm. five because they don't have a pick there, but you you know what I'm talking about where mm-hmm. I don't think that guy is necessarily going to come in and, and immediately leapfrog those guys. So I, I still feel like there's room for the Falcons to make a, a major upgrade at that cornerback position. Unlike say a position like tight end where typically tight ends come in, you know, and, and aren't necessarily impact players right away. Even a guy like Hooper, who we took in the third mm-hmm. round was the third string tight end his rookie season until Jacob Tammy got mm-hmm. injured and so even if you use like a third round pick on a tight end, I don't know if that guy's going to necessarily come in and take snaps away from Logan Paulson. But if you use a third round pick on a cornerback, I do think there's a pretty good chance that that guy's going to take away snaps from Bethel or Bleedy Ray Wilson. Um, but mm. it does seem like the Falcons are stacking players at that position that gives them some flexibility that they don't have to feel compelled to get a cornerback early in this draft. Mm. Or, or they can maybe wait until 
the fourth round or the sixth round or the seventh round or whatever and take a flyer on a developmental guy that can sort of mm-hmm. play special teams this this rookie season and, and then see what he develops into down the road. Yeah, yeah. It's also kind of similar in that sense. I I, I felt reminded like of the of the Brandon Fusco signing in the sense that it solidified a position that you really now don't have to take high up in the draft. And uh, uh, I do wonder if like this big picture draft strategy is going to work out well because because right now like the Falcons with those moves have locked themselves into defensive tackle basically as the only position that they maybe should target in the first three rounds of the draft because they've got three guys to replace there plus Adrian Claiborne as a fourth and it would not like there was I have sometimes these visions of them drafting four D linemen in the first four picks and I would not be mad about that uh, of course, it won't happen, but yes, that's a viable course of action after this offseason. And that's kind of like the only worry that I have is did they uh, like paint themselves into a corner with that picture? Like because of the if the D tackle class falls differently and they are they, those guys are gone by you by the time they are on the clock. What do you do then? You've got three guys to replace. And, and um, it's kind of like I, I like the idea of having two needs going into the draft because you like even though that's worse on paper because you have two starting spots to fill you at least have options if one of those like uh really is gone by the time you pick and right now they uh it's defensive tackle or die in the draft and uh, that's kind of worrisome but uh, of course it's always better to only have one starter to replace but if you cannot replace that one starter then yeah it's going to be a tough uh, D-line rotation next year. Yeah, I, I, I certainly understand that concern. I'm not overly concerned with it because it's hard. I mean, I won't say it's impossible, but it's hard for me to imagine the top four, all four of the top four defensive tackles being gone in the first 25 picks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly think there's a high probability that at least three of those four, but I think when it comes to whoever's the, the last one, stuck around and, and this was something that me and Mac talked about, you know, whether that's probably Taven Bryan, Maurice Hurst or, or Deron Payne, mm-hmm. I think the Falcons will be fine with any of those picks. So I, I feel reasonably confident that one of those guys is going to be available at pick 26. If not, then, you know, obviously you want to, you know, probably trading back makes the most sense, but obviously you need a, another team that is willing to trade up. Um, typically there usually has been a trade around that point in the draft the last couple of years. Uh, cause I think the Falcons basically don't think we have the same exact pick that we traded up to, to get Tack McKinley last yeah, year. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel, yeah, I, go ahead. Yeah. But before last year I did the study, uh, Dimitrov had like, I, I think five different opportunities to draft between, uh, 25 and 33. 34 or something like that and he has never not traded that pick away including last year for tech so he's he's just very very willing to trade in that part of the draft that's yeah. like he, he has never stand put there like that that that's never happened that he just sit there at 26 and take a player so i expect movement as well yeah yeah you know and i i, I think even though i wouldn't necessarily like it if they did this but i do think there still is that Possibility they wind up trading up if if you know there is a run on D tackles, mm-hmm. say you know around around pick eighteen or or so or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. and the Falcons try to you know because that's basically what happened with Tack McKinley last year, where guys like um, 
who was it? Charles Harris, I think. Yeah, Charles Harris. Yeah, and, and wasn't yeah. Taco, Taco Charlton also around? Yeah, there, yeah. Or was yeah. He, yeah. I think maybe I think we leapfrogged Dallas because they were bound to take a, a yeah. pass rusher. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so it was yeah. like, and this was sort of the same situation many many years ago with like Sam Baker, where we were planning on mm-hmm. taking Sam Baker in the early second round. And then I can't remember, maybe it was Jeff Ota. The Panthers took mm-hmm. him like a, a lot higher than what everybody thought they would. And then all of a sudden, the, like the next tackle came off the board around like pick 18. And then so the Falcons then had to jump up to like 21 mm-hmm. or something like that to get Sam Baker. So, you know, the the, the draft is always, no one has any clue what's going to happen. Um, that's what makes yeah. it so fun. <laughs> so yeah. we'll see what happens. But like, yeah. it, it's not necessarily, I'm not, too concerned about it but we'll see what happens uh, I I also think it's going to be okay but I think it's like uh, the, my main concern is if it's Brian or Payne that they end up not only taking but maybe even trading up for I, I have concerns that this is like there is a possibility of this being just another Hageman pick which you know is as a pro- project pick is I guess was okay in the second round back then and it, he just did not develop like he hoped but uh, to take such a guy like at 20 or 21, trading up for, for a guy like that, um, and, and Brian and Payne, for me, uh, seem like they are players that both will need some development when they get to the NFL. Um, so that would kind of be a pretty hefty price to pay for the, for the level of compensation that you get. Like trading up for Maurice Hurst, I would totally understand. Like if, if Dimitrov feels the need to jump to 21 for Hurst, then that would be fine by me. But for Brian and Payne, I would have uh, some question marks about that. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. I, I feel yeah. like Brian and Payne, you know, that's an interesting comparison that you use with Hageman. Mm-hmm. I feel like Brian and Payne are much, much further along than Hageman is. I, I think mm-hmm. Hageman was really kind of a low floor, high ceiling type of player. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, like I remember, I was just thinking about this maybe an, an hour or two ago because I was talking, a tweet with somebody about uh, – Hageman and whatnot, but um, yeah, like I remember feeling like Hageman was like a third round floor type of player, but had like first mm-hmm. round upside. And I feel like both Payne and 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 Brian are more like high second round floors, mm-hmm. first round mm-hmm. upside. So mm-hmm. um, I feel like yeah, I wouldn't necessarily be thrilled giving up a third round pick to get either one of those two guys or something like that. But uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, before we move on and, and discuss this uh, NFC changing of the guard, I want to remind listeners that they can check out Locked On NFL Draft Podcast with hosts John Ledger and Trevor Sikama, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, Marco, break down for us what you mean when you say that maybe there is uh, a new – uh, division maybe that maybe taking over the NFC very shortly as far as being the the heavy favorites to produce possibly a Super Bowl winner in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I, I basically went back and looked uh, at all the playoffs uh, going back to 2002 when the NFC South uh, was was formed in the divisional realignment, and and um, I took uh, moving averages of playoff wins and playoff games um, to see if there is any kind of pattern that emerges, like when do which divisions dominate. And, and it turned out that you can pretty clearly delineate 
phases, uh, three to four year runs where a division is dominating the playoff picture and the other divisions simply cannot keep up uh, with that particular division. And uh, and I said, okay, and then I split it up and I looked into the, into what kind of phases fit where and you can usually assign a Super Bowl winner in each of those phases. And so I thought, okay, maybe this is like this a thing where there is just one team blowing everybody else away like the Patriots do in the AFC and, and that's kind of what drives this whole thing. But when I broke it down more detail, in more detail, um, you can actually see that it's always multiple teams from one division dominating the playoff picture over that particular time frame. And so what I mean by that, like when you go back from 2002 to 2005, this first few years of the NFC South, the NFC South was actually the dominant division in the NFL. They had by far the most playoff wins and by far the most playoff games in that in that time span in the NFC. And you had, of course, the Super Bowl winner, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, you had a Super Bowl loser in the Carolina Panthers and two other championship game appearances by the Falcons and Carolina in 2005 in there. So this is already the pattern that I talked about. Like you see three different teams reaching the conference championship game in that four-year span. So it's not only the Bucks having this one great run. It's 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 kind of spreading in the division and the other divisions are simply not um, uh, able to, to keep up with that. So I looked further. The next era would be the 06 to 08 NFC East which was kind of in the middle of that is the 2007 Giants playoff run. Uh, but you also had, again, multiple teams reaching the championship game. And the, uh, the Philadelphia reached it in 2008 with Arizona. And uh, that was followed by uh, Aaron Rodgers' ascent and the NFC North supremacy, which is also an interesting um, uh, case study, if you want to say. They also have the most wins and the most games over the time frame of 2009 to 2011. And you have, uh, but not only Aaron Rodgers coming up, uh, Aaron Rodgers basically developed his great game uh, in the same year that Brett Favre had his magical 2009 season that ended in the in the championship game. And so kind of as a response to that, Aaron Rodgers developed his, uh, his otherworldly talents right around that time in 2010 of course, the great run by Rogers, and but you know it's kind of interesting what I mean. Like the divisions react to each other. You also see like Chicago and Lovey Smith at that time, um, kind of having the feeling we are really struggling to keep up with Jay Cutler in terms of in terms of those two great quarterbacks that we have in the division. So they uh, did the other thing and they promoted Rod Marinelli. Um, to the to defensive coordinator in 2010. And from that moment on, Chicago suddenly had a viable, very good defense, a top five defense in 2010 and 11, uh, which led to them appearing in the championship game in 2010. So it's always interesting how the coaches and the front offices react to particular uh, uh, um, uh, d- uh, flashes of dominance inside their division. And it kind of pushes them to also up their game a little bit. So in that phase of the NFC North, 09 till 11, you have three different teams again reaching the the um, conference championship level, and uh, the next phase, of course, with the new CBA, was then um, the NFC West, uh, 2012 to 2014, where you had uh, also again Seattle and San Francisco, and you can argue also that the Yorks hiring Harbor is a reaction to Pete Carroll's arrival in Seattle in the sense of taking a, a college coach, a proven college coach. Um, which was not uh, certainly not the, the default model back then in the NFL. 
And uh, you have with Kaepernick and Wilson also uh, reactions in terms of taking late round quarterbacks uh, and and uh, Seattle also seeing the 2012 run by the 49ers uh, acquiring Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett in 2013, extending their run for two more years after that. So there's kind of this interesting chess match of, of, of great uh, front offices and, and coaches trying to one-up each other. And of course, why are these windows all three to four years long is pretty easy to explain because after that, the rookie contracts are up and you have to pay the talent that you acquired. And also coaches get promoted elsewhere. You have Gus Bradley leaving. You have Jim Harbaugh basically. Or you have Jim Harbaugh leaving in total, not only getting promoted. And uh, and stuff like that happened. And so Dan Quinn moves over to Atlanta in 2015. And this begins a phase of NFC South supremacy. Uh, you, you can argue that 2015 was still kind of a, a, a season where the NFC West was still pretty good. They had two teams winning in the playoffs in that year, I think, as well. I think uh, Seattle beat the Vikings and Arizona beat Green Bay. So you still had multiple teams having playoff wins. Um, but you could argue that Carolina's run to the Super Bowl was kind of already taking over and beating both NFC West teams on the way was kind of the South taking over. And you, of course, had Carolina lose the Super Bowl. You had the Falcons lose the Super Bowl. Um, and last year you had uh, five different games, uh, you had three different teams in the, in the of the NFC South in the playoffs, and again also two wins. So that's kind of the interesting thing. If you look at it like that, you have a 2015, 2016, 2017 run of the NFC South, and uh, except for that first period uh, from 2002 to 2005, no run ever lasted really into a fourth year. So it would be kind of interesting. That was kind of the conclusion here. If, is this the end of the NFC South era of the last three years as we know it? Or um, is there the possibility of, of having one more year? That's kind of what, what the interesting point is where we are right now in the time frame. And, and uh, also, like, uh, if, you, if you look at it through this lens, you can also pretty easily spot fluky Super Bowls, if you want to call them like that. Um, the 2009 Super Bowl by the Saints comes to mind, which happened in, in, in uh, the era before that was the NFC East and, and the era after that was the NFC North, the dominant division. And if you look at the NFC South in that time frame, there was no playoff wins before or after that Saints win. Uh, uh, and so that's kind of like a weird story and it, we all remember like this defense suddenly being good for only this one year and, and basically being good only in turnovers and never having the sustained level of success and um, the other Super Bowl that kind of is fluky according to this lens is the 2011 Super Bowl by the Giants uh, also no playoff wins before that in the NFC East no playoff wins after that in the NFC East so it's kind of really like it came out of nowhere and we all remember that team is coming out of nowhere <laughs> and um, now the question is is the Eagles Super Bowl one of those because the Eagles also had like the NFC East had no playoff wins last year and uh, even in 2015 so um, that will be kind of interesting to see if if this is just a blip uh, and the NFC South has one more year in them and the, and the NFC East is gonna uh, again disappear next year or if Dak and Zeke return to great form and, and Carson Wentz is Carson Wentz again, and then we might be talking a Philly-Dallas championship game. And then in retrospect, it will be clear that this year's Super Bowl was just a, just a, a, 
the beginning of a new NFC East phase uh, in the NFC playoff pictures. So that's kind of a, the really fascinating uh, point where we are right now, where this kind of decision is, is being made. And um, it, it certainly does not look great for the Falcons because they kind of, they had their shot and, and this was kind of the window to do it. And they, but you have to remember like the, the Carolina run was pretty great and, and Falcons took, took great pride in being the one loss the one regular season loss. And, and and then the next year, the Falcons did a great run. So there is this kind of, again, this idea of, of, of uh, pushing each other and, and iron sharpening iron. Um, and uh, I, I tried to look up, like, what did New Orleans do to get good again? And the only thing I can find, like, that really correlates with this type of breakdown is the hiring of Jeff Ireland. So I guess we should call this phase the Jeff Ireland phase. <laughs> because... The Saints have suddenly started drafting good in 2015, 16, and 17, which is kind of the main catalyst for their success. So I guess we should just credit it all to Jeff Ireland and and uh, be done with it. Um, but but that is also like the major point. Like uh, when the Saints drafted Marshall Lattimore to uh, to compete with Julio Jones, that changed the dynamic and that changed the playoff picture. And the Saints defense suddenly became good, like one uh, overnight, basically. And so uh, it will be interesting to see if it's sustainable for one more year or if we're going to be bystanders uh, and, and watching another division, probably the East, maybe the East, uh, rise to the top now in, in the NFC. It's interesting. I, 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 as you were explaining and breaking it down, I, it basically I came to three conclusions, two of them on sort of the fluky years. Uh, I'll circle back to that. But also the, the main conclusion, it seems like, the NFC, based off of this three-year trend, if the NFC South's three-year run is is over, that means the NFC is pretty wide open going into mm-hmm. the season, which I think most people mm-hmm. would probably agree with, with teams like Philadelphia possibly repeating Minnesota, mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. A, a team on the come up. The expectations that Rams. Green Bay will bounce back mm-hmm. with Rodgers healthy, mm-hmm. the Rams, um, mm-hmm. you know, people niners Jimmy Garoppolo as well. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, maybe even the bears, if, if suddenly Mitch Trubisky makes that leap to the same level that, uh, Carson Wentz and, and Jared Goff made in year two, as well yeah. as what you mentioned in the NFC East. And, and of course mm-hmm. the NFC South probably isn't going to be, you know, a, a pushover because you still have mm-hmm. three teams in that division who all probably feel like they should be in the playoffs and, and, then there's Tampa Bay. Uh, but, <laughs> but, like, going back to the flukes, like, the years that stood out to me was this past year where if this was an NFC South year, then certainly the Falcons losing to the Eagles and the Saints losing to the Vikings in the way that they lost was yeah. basically came down to, like, the last play of the game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does indicate that maybe this past year with the Eagles and the Vikings, despite those two teams being very mm-hmm. good teams and being obviously the favorites, you know, the one and mm-hmm. two seeds um, mm-hmm. probably shouldn't have won if we play, you know, if we could simulate, uh, yeah. you know, that, that, that playoffs multiple times, maybe yeah. the Falcons and Saints come out on top uh, in the majority of those. But the other year that stood out to me was the 2011 season where you had the Giants beating the 49ers in the in a, NFC Championship game. Mm-hmm. And that was like the, the 49ers beat the Saints in yeah. a magical sort of Alex, the best game Alex Smith has ever played in his life. <laughs> and you had the Giants beating a 15-1 and Packers team, which yeah, that was just, probably, yeah. you know, that was in the NFC North according to this trend yeah, sort yeah, of exactly. formula. So it's like it should have been, you know, maybe – 
the 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 Packers beating the Saints in in the NFC exactly. Championship game that year, yeah. and so um, exactly. yeah, it, it is interesting to see how sort of this trend seems to to sort of be very cyclical, where it's like in year one of the trend, a team in a division loses the typically uses the, the championship game, and some other divisions team wins the Super Bowl, but then in year mm-hmm. two, that division's team lo- wins the Super Bowl, and then in year three, mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a grab bag of. Yeah, sorts, ex- but typically you have a team mm-hmm. very competitive. Yeah. So it, it, when you go back yeah. through the history, it's, it's very interesting that this trend continues. And so basically, I guess whoever loses, basically if this trend continues, whoever loses the NFC Championship game this year, it, the next couple of years should be their division's years. But we'll, we'll see how, mm-hmm. I guess we'll see how that yeah. goes. Yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, and I totally agree. Like, if if you, like, break it down, the Saints were this one play away and, and the Falcons were this one play away of, of, of winning their playoff games last year. And uh, uh, w- with the Saints, if they would have made that, if, if Marcus Williams just uh, did one other thing, um, um, they, you would have, again, a third team reaching the championship um, level from the NFC South in that three-year span after Carolina and Atlanta. So it would, that would still, that would again be a, a very rich uh, group of teams. And also a reminder, a very sad reminder that out of every dominant phase, one Super Bowl winner like was, was born, like Tampa Bay at first, the Giants in the second, Green Bay in the third, and Seattle in the fourth. And the NFC South in their current run were, well, one play yes. away. Um, of, yes. of, yeah. So from that perspective, maybe there is a last year in there because they still have to get their Super Bowl champ uh, out of this era. So that's kind of also the the optimistic explanation. (laughs) Yes, the football guy, gods, it's, you know, it it reminds me of a a movie that came out many, many years ago called Final Destination, where uh, Mm -hmm. death killed all these kids, all these people on the airplane, but these kids got off the plane. And then, like, I guess two years later had to circle back and and start killing off the kids. I know that's a very dark comparison <laughs> I'm making, but maybe the football gods, like the Falcons, you know, blowing their Super Bowl in the way yeah. that it did, maybe it has to circle back and yeah. they have to win their Super Bowl in 2018 or 2019 or, or yeah. whatever the case may be. So we'll see yeah. how, how that plays out. But it's certainly, this does not make you feel any better hearing this um, where 2016 Definitely, definitely should have been the Falcons' year, yeah. and of course, definitely. we know how that yeah. uh, did not turn out in their favor. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is an interesting trend, definitely. Were there any other sort of things that stuck out to you? Any sort of way that you could possibly predict this upcoming season, or is it more just like who knows? And we'll, we'll, it will, in hindsight, it becomes much more obvious. I think I think it, it's mostly hindsight. Uh, it's it's much more obvious. I think the uh, if as I said, you know the it's it's very curious that the East had like no like every other dominant phase was announced in a way like being at least competitive in the playoffs before the phase arrived, uh, and and the, the East 
like right now simply did not have that. Like you have Detroit uh, losing to Dallas. Dallas was the last playoff win of the NFC East before this year. That was in 2014. And the one before that was the Giants Super Bowl in 2011. That's that. Those are all, that's the last two playoff wins before the Eagles beating the Falcons were those two games, like two games in a, f- a six years period. Yeah. So there was nothing announcing this new if it is that NFC East phase. So it could be that the NFC East is really just uh, a blip right now. And and I think like so far the data, it would look like that. And if it isn't the NFC East, then the possibility is that is that there is still one year left in the South. And the other dark horse, uh, I, I would say, would be the NFC North. Like that would be, if you look at the numbers, they had, they had four playoff games in 2016 and two wins by the Packers. In 2016, like they had multiple playoff teams in 2016, a championship game appearance uh, in, in in both years now, in 16 and in 17. So it might just be that when a third team joins that that group, uh, like you said, with Chicago uh, and, and with a new coach reacting uh, to the development around them, um, uh, that could be the third team that kind of makes all those dominant runs. Like it's always basically three teams being good over that time frame. And so if Chicago really is that team this year, then we might be looking at the NFC North as the next uh, era. Uh, and so that would be kind of the, the dark horse candidate, but that would certainly be an interesting outcome that uh, not a lot of people would kind of uh, bank right now on. But if you look at the numbers, like that would be my, my the, the, the third best option, I would say, um, um, beyond the Eagles kind of really... Uh, ushering in a new NFC's era and the uh, NFC South having one last huzzah in them. Yeah, yeah I, I, I do feel like now that you say that and sort of thinking about how competitive Minnesota has been the last couple of years mm-hmm. with the addition of Kirk Cousins, mm-hmm. um, with Chicago and Detroit getting mm-hmm. new head coaches, mm-hmm. um, it mm-hmm. would seem like the NFC North may be poised if if, if I was to put money down on any division mm-hmm. sort of uh, – controlling you know if mm-hmm. i'm if i'm already going to just assume that the nfc south's reign is over i would probably put money down more on the nfc north at this point than i would right now the nfc west who mm-hmm. I, I think is a mm-hmm. division that people want to talk up just because of yeah. the rams surge mm-hmm. last year as well as the 49ers with garoppolo and whatnot yeah so yeah. yeah i feel like seattle is on the downward trend i feel like arizona's you know maybe depending on if they get a quarterback in this draft and maybe that'll yeah. sort of reverse yeah. that trend. But it does mm-hmm. feel like the Rams are sort of due for a regression a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not necessarily, even though I am a big fan of Kyle Shanahan and Jimmy Garoppolo, I'm not necessarily ready to pencil them in as a team that's ready to compete at the higher levels of the NFC yeah, yeah, by any means. Yeah. So I, I, it does seem like through a process of elimination, the NFC North would probably be the favorite. So if you're a Vikings fan exactly. listening mm-hmm. and you're, you know, and basically every all the talk around the whole Kirk Cousins signing has been basically it's a three-year deal. That's a three-year window for the Vikings mm-hmm. to win a Super Bowl in that window. Mm-hmm. And this sort of trend does suggest that there's a, yeah. maybe a better than average chance that they might yeah. possibly uh, achieve that. Yeah, 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 totally. I agree totally with that. It fits perfectly. And the other thing, yeah, I would also like completely agree with you that the NFC West talk uh, um, and as much as I really love everything that the John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan have done and what, what Jimmy Garoppolo looked like last year, I simply 
cannot get around those odds that San Francisco is right now getting in Vegas, which is just ridiculous being the fourth team right now uh, as favorites to win the Super Bowl. And and, and, and I just want to like I, I already right now do my projections for next year. Like I have complicated DVOA formulas and everything. But I'll try to project win totals for next year. And just looking at the home and away schedule, I think people are going to be really, really mad when when San Francisco has a good season, but they end up with a 7-9 and nine record or an 8-8 eight and eight record. And Seattle has a significantly, or not a significantly, but basically a worse season than San Francisco, but ends up with a 9-7 and seven record or 10-6 and six record, which is entirely possible. Because even if those two teams are on an even playing field or, or, or see eye to eye to each other on, from a pure talent standpoint, the schedule between Seattle and San Francisco falls, breaks, breaks down like in such a worst case scenario for San Francisco, in such a best case scenario for Seattle, it's amazing. So they all have the divisional games that are the same. But if you look at home and away split, the San Francisco gets to play at home uh, uh, Seattle gets to play at home, Green Bay, Minnesota, Dallas, Kansas City, and the Chargers. Those are the five best out-of-division teams that they have to play, and they all get them at home. They go on the road to Detroit, Chicago, Carolina, Denver, and Oakland. Those are, and, and with San Francisco, you had it completely flipped around. They have Chicago, Detroit, the Giants, Denver, and Oakland at home, and they go on the road to Green Bay, Minnesota, Kansas City, Chargers, and Tampa Bay. So even just by that split, if you look at it like that, San Francisco, even if they win all of their home games, like, and that's a tall order because you still have to beat the Rams and the Seahawks and everything, like, where are they going to be favored on the road? Like, maybe in Tampa Bay, but maybe in Arizona, but that's like, that's really, it's, it's hard to scrape by to 11 wins or 12 wins, what the people are expecting right now out of them, uh, just by the nature of how the schedule falls and, and who you're going to play home and away. And Seattle is... Have, will have exactly the flipped schedule. And for that reason alone, I think even if San Francisco is the better team next season, which is still to be proven, um, they might still have the worse record than Seattle next year. Okay. Now, Marco, since this is a Locked on Falcons podcast, I, I do want to wonder, this will, we'll, we'll leave it out, where does your sort of uh, win totals sort of suggest for the Falcons in 2018? Uh, right now, the Falcons are at uh, 10 wins in my projections. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. Uh, would, yeah, I'll take that, which would put them basically around the sixth seed for the NFC uh, and, and, and uh, in a good chance to, to grab a wild card spot. Yeah. I'm assuming that New Orleans is um, the front runner in the South? New, yeah, New, New Orleans is the front runner, yeah. New Orleans. So. And uh, you get East Philly, of course, as a favorite, and uh, and uh, the Rams for the West and Minnesota for the East. And then you, the wildcard spots right now in my projections revolve around Dallas, Atlanta, Seattle, all around 10 wins. And Green Bay at nine and a half is just hair behind. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good way of, of ending it. Uh, on a, I guess a positive note, probably not as positive as some people might want, but um, we'll take it. Ten wins is fine. Like I'm not going to be upset of, of a projection of ten wins. I, I feel like that's about right. Um, so, Marco, let the people know if they want to react to this insight or get further uh, breakdowns and, and maybe get a heads up on what the next project you're working on uh, in the future on Twitter and elsewhere. 
Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Vienna Falcons. Uh, and if you are of the German speaking variety, you can also follow at Two Points Conversation. Uh, that's uh, the German podcast and blog that I have with a buddy of mine um, about the NFL. Uh, he's a 49ers fan. I'm a Falcons fan. Um, we have a lot of NFC banter among us. And uh, yeah, if you uh, so follow that as well, we have a new episode coming up this week. Uh, but other than that, yeah, just uh, at Vienna Falcons on Twitter and uh, hit me up with any stats or anti-stats takes that you have uh, about the Falcons. All right. Mark, I, I know we will definitely talk with you later after the draft, sometime between the draft and, and the start of the season at some point in the summertime. So definitely we will hit you up again uh, to get some further insights on sort of what is cooking in your uh, statistical pot, I guess we could say. So, uh, yeah, appreciate <laughs> it, man, and uh, yeah. you have a good one. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. All right, man. All right, guys. There you have it. Marco, Vienna Falcons, dropping some insight. Always love having Marco on just because I'm going to learn something every day. Or not every day, but every time he comes on. And I hope that when you guys listen to this podcast, you are learning something every day. Whether that's, you know, what flavor of chicken wing is superior why Tyrod Taylor is the greatest quarterback of all times, or I don't know, what other stuff that I, I ever I talk about, or you know, maybe you know, why Patrick DeMarco is the greatest fullback of all times. I, I, I don't know. Those are the things that you, you tend to get uh, great insight on this Locked On Falcons podcast. Of course, if you want to provide your feedback uh, on some of the things that you wish you were learning about or that you appreciate learning about or, or whatever it is. Uh, I am open to hearing all that feedback. Of course, you can hit me up on Twitter at Falk fans. If it's podcast related, just let me know in the tweet. If it is podcast related, you can send it over to the show's Twitter handle at locked on Falcons. If you prefer another social media platform by the name of Facebook, locked on Falcons is the Facebook page. Give us a like while you're there. You can also contact us through email, which has no character limits LockedOnFalcons at mail.com is the email address. Uh, you can also leave a comment on LockedOnFalcons.com or FalcFans.com where this podcast is posted daily. And, of course, the two websites where supplemental information and content you can find, particularly at LockedOnFalcons.com. You can go and check out a recent Leftover Mailbag episode that I posted on Sunday, uh, March 25th or whatever the days are. Again, my calendar uh, is all screwed up in my head. It's part of the problem of doing these daily podcasts. I never know what the day is or the date is. So I think it was March 25th. You can check that out where I talked a little bit about maybe Indomitian Sue impacting the Saints as well as Ben Garland's move to defensive tackle on a permanent basis um, as well as some other topic that I am currently blanking on. Let me do the power of editing look um, oh, yes, whether the Falcons might address best player available after they address their D-tackle needs early in the draft that we touched upon a little bit earlier in this episode. So uh, go check that out on LockedOnFalcons.com as well. Um, as I've reminded you guys, um, I will have a mock draft soon up on probably FalcFans.com later this week. I've been working on it, but every time I'm gearing up to something major happens, it completely changes how um, 
I'm going to do the mock draft, and so I probably should just put it up and, and let the changes be uh, damned and whatnot. But uh, uh, that's something I'm working on, and you can check that out on FalkFans.com in the coming week, where I will probably include a first-round mock with trades, uh, followed shortly thereafter by a seven-round mock draft projecting the Falcons' picks on LockedOnFalcons.com as well. Um, now that we've cleared out the mailbag, so to speak, going back the last five or six weeks, we can have an additional Q&A, possibly later this week, uh, towards the end of the week. So definitely hit me up on all those social media and email and whatnot if you have questions that you want answered on a soon-to-be Q&A episode. Uh, as of right now, we will probably be back on Tuesday starting our pivot towards the draft now that free agency seems to be dying down and that will probably be the first of many episodes that are beginning to be devoted to the draft and we'll be bringing all the great draft content as we get into April and that's basically what we will devote the entire month of April to which is bringing great guests onto this podcast to discuss the draft discuss some of these top D tackles and whatnot. All right, um, this this inch outro is about to be 20 minutes long, so I'll stop talking now. But I just wanted to give you guys a heads up on what's coming up on this podcast. So definitely, if this was your first episode listening, I hope you enjoyed it. If you aren't subscribed, go ahead and do so on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Android, uh, Spotify, TuneIn, all that stuff. Um, so we, you can find us anywhere. And of course you can find us online at lockdownfalcons.com as well. So that's it guys. Stay locked on. We'll be back probably tomorrow with a new episode, uh, with a guest to, to discuss what is next, the next phase of the Falcons off season, uh, which is going to be the 2018 NFL draft. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the locked on podcast network, your team, Every day.